Good morning, everybody. That's running. There we go. Uh, scripture reading this morning for us will be out of John six twenty-five. If you don't have a Bible, um, put your hand up. Somebody will hand you one with a smile. And uh, please be reminded, if, they, if you don't have one at home, take it with you. And uh, we encourage you to join us in journeying through God's Word. So we're reading from John 6, starting at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you, are, you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures the eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent, who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and he, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father give me will come to me, and whoever come to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall not lose not that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that come down from heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So what would you say is the uh, greatest learning environment in your life? I'm going to give you two options, okay? Ask for a little participation here. Uh, So school, okay? Your school environment, okay? We'll put up your hand if you like that. If that was your greatest learning environment. Or we say life experience, the school of hard knocks, okay? So let's see, your schooling, like what, those kind of things. So let's see the hands. Who, th- who thinks their, their schooling was their greatest learning environment? We've got one, we've got a few. You see, see some hands? What about, what about life experience, uh, school? Those kind of, it's a little bit uh, more dominant. I kind of expected that, okay? School is extremely valuable. It gives us tools for further learning. It, it's an opportunity to put knowledge into practice to, to learn. And then, but I think all of us would agree at times there are certain things in our lives 
that you can't learn just simply through going to school. And all of us have had times where we struggle with life circumstances. We're going to talk about this idea of the wilderness here. And it's a physical wilderness. And we're not going to jump too quickly to application. Because it's not just to jump to this spiritual wilderness in our lives. But there is a question about where we sit here today. Sometimes we wonder, why isn't life easier? Sometimes you wonder, what, what's the purpose in hardship? Why, is it, why do I have to go through this hard thing in my life? And if you're a believer in Jesus, you might still ask that question. Why is, I thought this was supposed to be a game changer. Okay? Why is it still difficult for me? And so these are great questions. And they're, they're questions that we want to head into uh, Exodus 15 today. We're going to come back, we're going to hear that passage being, that was just read, John, later on. But we're still continuing in our Exodus series here, John 15, 22. And then we're, we're actually going to cover 17 to, to chapter 17, verse 7. It's, a, it's another big one today. A section of scripture that is often dubbed Wilderness University. That's, the, that's what uh, many of the commentaries call it. You know, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers, he, he called this wilderness the Oxford and Cambridge, British schools, uh, for God's students. But I believe it, it actually speaks not just to, uh, if you would say I'm a believer here today, but it speaks to all of those who are in this room today. And if you ever struggle with doubt, doubt about good, the goodness of God, is there a God, why, why am I going through these things? And most of us in this room, even if you call yourself a skeptic today, probably have looked at our lives and say, man, that, I felt like that was a time in my life where I was just wandering through, I can't remember, like I just don't know what I was doing during that period of my life. And so turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be in 20, verse 22. The setting is, uh, is post-Red Sea miracle, Okay. So the, this, they've, they've crossed over and they're entering into this, this wilderness of Shur, it's called. You see it it's sort of just right beside Goshen there. They haven't headed down south very far yet. They're just crossing over and that's what the setting is. And so the Israelites have just seen the miracle of the parting of the sea. And they've just seen the absolute destruction of their great enemy, the Egyptians. And so the story here that follows over the next few chapters is, is a story of three tests that God would take them through. They actually, uh, and these tests are going to show up later in the Bible, and we're going to see how, that, how, how we see this connects to Jesus' life. But the first test, and I want to look at uh, here, is this test that we, we're going to call bitter water. Would you read with me, starting in verse 22, it says this, that Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went down into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. You know, the problem with deserts is that there's no water there. And sometimes when you find water, it's bad. And so this word, actually, Mara, just means bitterness. And so they, it's, an, it's a word that they just, this area, this, the water was undrinkable. You, it was poisonous. 
And so they called this place bitterness. We're so removed from this, this idea here in Ontario. But they were facing the physical pain that comes with thirst after three days. We just go to, a, to our faucet every time we're thirsty. But the physical pain that comes when you need water. And now they had come to this place. They thought they had gotten water. And you know what they got? Disappointment. Think about the disappointments in your life. When you're longing for something and you finally get there and you think you've reached the spot and you come and it's not good. I was thinking about it this week when, you know, how many times have you experienced the bitter dis- disappointment of a, of, a, of a job? You know, that wedding that turns into a hard marriage. The pregnancy that turns into a, a, a situation where you, that a child is much harder to care for than you ever thought imaginable. You know, that job where you thought at the interview, this is it. This is going to be the best thing ever. And then you got the boss that is the most horrible boss that makes going in the worst nightmare. Right? You think everything's looking so good, and then you get disappointment. What's your response when life is, it feels bitter? But here's what the Israelites respond. How, they, how, do, you, how do we respond? I'm going to ask that question, but here's what the, the Israelites do. Verse 24. And the people, what? Grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? You know, complaining and grumbling, it's a sign of ungratefulness. It's a sign of self-centeredness. It's about me. It's a sign of um, insecurity. I can't, uh, I have no confidence in anything but the situation, what I see before me right now. And it's what happens in the minivans of our lives. You know, when homework needs to be done. And that's just the adults, you know. The kids, uh, you think the kids are complaining, but... The, the, inside your head at the front, you're just like clenching the steering wheel, saying, I just got to make it through. I just got to get home. And we complain about our kids so much too. You know, one thing that really emerges from this text it's, is that even the signs and wonders, some of the greatest signs and wonders can be, can be shown to a person, and it does no good when they're faced with their next challenge of their lives. Because our hearts are prone to turn inward and to turn towards self-centeredness. doesn't matter that God showed up, that this was good in the past. All I'm living in is right here and right now. And isn't this true? We live in the, the here and the now in so much of our emotional roller coaster. So that's the people's response. And then I wanted to turn us to God's response here. Verse 25, and he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the wa- water became sweet. And the Lord made uh, for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and he, he, keep all of his statutes, 
I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your, your healer. And then they came to Elam, a new spot, where, they were, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So we get a, we get a miracle, another miracle. God's, God's consistently showing up with miracles in this, in this time. And in this way, God actually shows grace to a grumbling people. He, he decides not to just take them to the, the good water. He says, no, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to show you what, who I am. And he takes it in a most weird way. What is throwing a log into the water? What, what good is that? And we get this log in the water, and all of a sudden the water turns from bitter to good. It's drinkable. And this is such a, a picture, a pattern of, of life where God takes them to a place of need which reveals their heart attitude. What does it surface? It surfaces insecurity. It, it surfaces self-centeredness. It just brings forth what's already in their hearts. And then he communicates his expectations to his people so that they would have a, a time of learning in their disobedience. And then... Then, he takes them to this place of abundance. I just want to highlight three things that kind of emerge from this text as I was reading it this week. The first one is this. You know, Israel is already saved from their, uh, from their situation out of Egypt. It's all, they're already saved people. But they, now they've got to learn about obedience. They've got to learn what it means to obey and to follow God's word. The, were, these requirements weren't the basis of their salvation. The obedience was, wasn't how they were saved, why they were saved. It came after. And they were given uh, the Ten Commandments even uh, in this pattern. We, God says, I brought you out of Egypt, so do this. There's a connection between salvation and, and obedience. But don't mix up the order. God shows up in salvation even when people don't obey him. The second thing I, I think really emerged for me here is that, did you notice that God gives them a new name? This idea of this name, is, it, it's not really captured as a name because it's in small letters. It says here in our English text, for I am the Lord, your healer. And he says, this is the, the name, Yahweh Rophe, the God who heals. And so Philip Riken, he says, Rophe refers to wellness and soundness, both physically and spiritually. That's what that word says. So the miracle at Mara shows that God can heal the waters, but he really wants to heal the heart. He doesn't just want to take and give you something to solve your immediate problem. He wants to heal the, the, heart, the heart problem, the immediate soundness of your life. So after this note on healing, God brings them to Elam, where there's 12 springs of water, and the text says they camp by the water. And wherever this is, we don't really know where it is. It's obviously a place of abundance and refreshments. And this is really just speaks to a, a third point that kind of emerges from this test. That God is able to care for people, sometimes through the miracle, and sometimes he cares for you through the providence. Some of us, 
long for the miracle. If you have a financial pressure in your life, you love it when God, if God would just cut you the check and would show up in your, in your mail slot, right? You want God in the, in the times of the, when you're struggling with sickness to take it away right now, the miracle. And sometimes God does that. But notice that he also takes them along and then he takes them to a place where he provides for them in abundance. And we would call this providence. And you know what this means? Is that sometimes God will show up with the check, but sometimes he gives you the job that pays the bills. And remember this sometimes when we grumble about our jobs. Because God sometimes, in, in many ways, is providing for the, the ways for you to provide for your family or to, um, to put food on the table, to cl- put clothes down. And this is just it was a reminder to me that God shows up in the miraculous and he shows up in the providence of our lives. And those three things just emerge from that first test. You know, the, so first test, lots of complaining from people. God shows grace. If you get everything, remember everything else, that's what the first test is about. God shows up with grace. Let's, let's, let, let's see what happens in test number two. We're going to look over, would you jump with me to uh, 16, chapter 16, we're going to read 1 to 3. It says, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sion, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where at least we had meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So first test, they're thirsty. Second test, they're hungry, okay? Now, I have an angelic three-year-old. I think she's angelic. Sometimes I have moments and things, but she's just really cute, okay? But at 5 p.m. every day, she turns into an angry little person. Uh, My wife and I just started to ask her questions. Like, are you hangry? Which is hungry and angry at the same time, okay? And I just wanted to show you a video of what it kind of looks like each day at 5 p.m. So can I just show you this video? Not this is not my daughter. What's wrong? No. You okay? No. You're not okay? No. Want a snack? Yes. Food? Yes. You okay? Yeah, I did. You're fine? Yes! Food is the answer to everything. And here what we got is the reaction of the Israelites. They're hangry in the, in the wilderness. They got to encounter their hunger. And it's in a, it, they're in a place where they're lacking in the food department. And so God actually confronts it. You know, Karen and I sometimes make excuses. We say, oh, she's just that. She's doing this. or It's because she's hungry. We put up with a lot more misbehavior at that time. But God actually just kind of confronts them in this time. Um, but here's what happens. Um, 
is that God again shows grace to a complaining people in the form of a miracle. And he gives them two things. He gives them bread from heaven, and he gives them more meat than they, can, they want to fill their, their stomachs with. And he does this in incredible ways. Okay? Um, let's take a, a few minutes and just really study what God does in this really significant passage of Scripture. I say it's significant because it's referenced for the rest of the Bible in many, in many different spots in the New Testament and, and shows up. So this is a key passage of Scripture for us to study this morning. Okay? So we want to see God's provision here. And these are, the, these are characteristics of what happens with God's provision. First thing is, it was supernatural. Okay? And we want to look, if you want to look at verse 11 of the, of the passage, verse 16, verse 11, it says this. Um, and the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And in the evening, quail came up and covered the, the, the camp. And in the morning, dew laid around the camp. And when the dew had ca- ca- gone up, there was from the face of the, on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing. Fine as frost on the ground. You know, in Genesis 3, uh, God speaks to Adam and he says that one of the results of the fall of, of his sin, what, one of the results of the sin that he committed was that for men is that their, their work would be, will be difficult. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And so from the very beginning, bread was and is a product of hard labor. It, it doesn't just show up, even though we go to the grocery store. We've we got to do the work to get, bread on the, to get bread into the grocery stores. And so, the, but not this bread. This bread, just you go outside, and it's sitting there on the ground. It's in flakes. And it, it, it's such an interesting thing, because it's, it's the total opposite of the curse. You don't, have to, you don't have to work for it, it's just there. And another sign of how miraculous this uh, is for the Israelites is that they, how they respond to the manna. They call it manna because it appears to be related to a sound that they make, an expression. It's this. What is it? That's what manna is. What is this thing? They're totally mystified by it. They've, it just show, it sort of shows that they've never seen anything like it. And so verse 31 gives us this further description. He says, it's like a coriander seed, white, and it's a ta- it tastes like wafers made with honey. And it's a, it's a foretaste of the land that's going to flow with milk and honey. And some of them, uh, some people, some scholars have tried to give a human explanation to this, saying that it was something that was common to the people. But this is not the picture here. They have no clue what this, this stuff is. And sometimes we get a really vague word like thing and stuff. That's, what it, that's what's in the Bible here. The psalmist talks about it as the bread of angels. That's what it's referenced in Psalm 78. And then not just bread, but they get quail. And the quail, they don't have to go like searching all over the place. The quail come in and just kind of cover the ground. Like, I don't know if they had to hunt them uh, particularly, but it kind of feels like you just had to walk outside and grab one off the ground, and then you'd have your meat for the day. It's that easy. 
And so what we get is this picture of that God, and actually the psalmist says this in, in that same psalm, Psalm 78, that he rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the sea. And the message that comes clear is that this provision is from the hand of God alone. You're not supposed to try to uh, come up with all kinds of other excuses. This is God's provision from his hand. And so first off, it's supernatural. Secondly, it's sufficient. The test, it, it actually shows us that God gave manna every day for 40 years. God is incredibly consistent. God also says, don't try to hoard it. If you, if you think, this Krispy Kreme stuff is really good. I really like this stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it. I, I don't know if God's going to provide the next day. So I'm going to try to store a, up a jar of it here just in case. And you know what they find the next, if you did that? You found worms in it. You found that it was rotten. That it stunk. And that God would, would give them his, uh, that all that they could eat, no more and no less. And so God is teaching them today them, about their daily bread. He's their provider each day. The exception to this day-to-day rule is actually just so that you didn't think that it's just a, a natural phenomenon that one day out of the seven, the Sabbath day, he would give them enough to cover two days. And then they could store it that, on, that, on that seventh day. They could store it overnight and it wouldn't go bad. It wouldn't stink. It wouldn't have worms in it. And so on that day, they were allowed to collect enough for the Sabbath And so the Israelites, though, they still have hard times with this trust thing. Do you have hard times with trusting God? Are you trusting in your daily bread for him, from him? And they had a hard time believing that God will provide them enough for the Sabbath time, too. And this is a question that I had to look deep in my own heart, because I struggle with taking the Sabbath. I struggle with this deeply in my, in my life. Because in, in many ways, this is a real honest confession of that sometimes it's not because uh, there's just too much work. It's that I get this concept in my head that if I don't show up and I don't work hard, then, then God won't work. Do you see how, how, how self-centered that is? And God's saying to them, you can rest. You don't need to be on all the time. But all of us have to look inside, especially as we work, and say, am I taking the time in my life and obeying the Sabbath the same as I obey the commandments that say, thou shalt not murder? Do you know that the Sabbath is placed alongside of that? Would you and I trust that God would provide if we didn't work as many hours as everyone else around us? That we would take day, a day for rest. And you know what it did? It distinguished them from the nations all around them. They were different. They were set apart. They didn't work like everyone else. And so this provision from God, it's supernatural. It's sufficient. And thirdly, it's sacred. You know, later on, that God tells Moses to save a little bit of it. 
to put it away. And that uh, manna actually goes, is placed into the Ark of the Covenant. We don't, it's not existing yet. But that, that manna is going to exist and, and, and is be stored alongside of the, in that Ark, along with the testimony, which is really the tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them. And so it served as a, a way of reminding people of God's mighty salvation and his provision. They get the law and they get the manna side by side to show Here's what the law is, but here's the time when, you, when I showed up and provided for you in the wilderness. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses actually reflects on manna. He, he says this miracle bread was not just to sustain them physically. It was to teach them a, a spiritual lesson. What was that lesson? Uh, Deuteronomy 8. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it real quick. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord uh, your God has led you into the, into the 40 years of wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, or your fathers know, that he might, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God isn't just concerned about filling bellies. He's trying to shepherd their hearts. And so he says this experience is is intended to humble them and to teach them to depend on God's word. And so God's disciplining them, shaping them. So... Philip Reichen, in his commentary, he, he wrote that they, they, needed to, they didn't have to go through the wilderness. It was not necessary. The wilderness experience was not necessary for Israel's salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. They had 430 years of unlearning to do, where they had learned to depend on all the whims of the other gods around them. They had learned all these bad habits and all of a sudden, they needed to refine their trust in the one. And so this is the second test. We have the, the bitter water. And now we have this bread from heaven. And I want to just talk quickly about the third test. And it's found in Exodus 17. It's the water from the rock. And this water from the rock is the story where the, the congregation moves on to the, from the wilderness of, of Sion from, by stages. And then they experience, yet again, thirst. And so they move along and they, they change from complaining to quarreling. They, Moses says, they're ready to stone me to God. There is a revolt happening. And so they move in this way. It's escalating. And what we find here is that at the end, we read how they were also asking, is the Lord among us or not? This is awful. (laughs) I'm not saying in judgment, but this this is a bad situation going on here. Therefore, they name the place Masa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling. And so that's what the names of those places mean. And so instead of trusting God, they're testing God. And so think about what happens here and the implications. Three things. They, they demanded God's pre- provision. We found this in verse 2. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. So they move beyond asking to demanding. 
And I, I just asked the question this morning, do we do the same thing sometimes in making demands of God at home or in our churches, in our, in our lives at work? We say to God, we don't ask God to fix it. We say, fix this, God. Do you want me to believe in you or not? Fix this, God. And there's a big difference between asking and demanding of God to, to, to do something in your life. And there are times, with, as we can read here, that we must wait on the Lord patiently. So they, they first off, they demand God's provision. The second thing is they, they question God's pr- protection. You're going to find this in verse 3. Okay? It says, But the people thirsted from water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up to, out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they, they move from whining to accusation from, of God. God, you, you're not good. You're not, you're not uh, your purposes here aren't good. And so they move along and they, they question God's protection in their lives. I ask myself this question, is, do I ever entertain thoughts in my own life of whether or not God, I entertain, is God really good? Can I really trust him? Do you ever fall into the thought that is God punishing me still for my sin? You know, if you've turned your life over to him, you've, you're following him with your life. And then you say, I believe in the cross that Jesus paid for it all. He, he took the, the full consequences of my sin. But if I keep sinning, God's still going to keep whacking me. And this idea that God is punishing us as followers of his for our sin, do we doubt his goodness in the hard things of our lives? And thirdly, they, they demanded God's provision. They questioned God's protection and then they doubted God's uh, presence. Verse 7, it says, it says there, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of the Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because of the, the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The question is, do you ever feel abandoned by God? Do you feel like God's not shown up in your life and you believe that he's left you? And these, this passage, it brings up really incredible heart questions that all of us honestly ask at times when we're in those dark places. And we, thought, we likely have thought about them or entertained them. And I, I look out and I know in a group this size, maybe that is one of you right here, right now, where you're asking God those kind of questions. And my prayer is that you'd hear the, the God, God's word in the gospel here. Because in these three tests, all we can see is All we can see right now is a bunch of grumbling, a bunch of failure, and God showing grace every so often. We, if we were to sit here and look at it, we go, man, these people, they're awful. We can start going, well, at least I don't do these types of things. I want to turn to the application of this text and and not leave those questions that I just asked you hanging. For if God reveals himself in this passage to be both miracle worker and provider, we need to see beyond the failure of people. 
We need to see a better example. And in this, in this way, God's actually been gracious to us because he's shown us a better way, a better person. And he, he shows us that in the gospel, and we have it in the life of Christ, of Jesus. And there are three amazing, I believe, gospel connections or Christ connections that you can walk into today, that you can see that are deeply connected to this Exodus passage. And the first one is this, that in Matthew 4, do you know that God shows us this? That Jesus passed the test that Israel failed. You can flip over with me to Matthew 4 if you, if you want. You can just listen. you find Matthew 4. I'm just going to look at that real quickly. Do you know that in this scene, Jesus has just had a, a baptism by John the Baptist. He has uh, had the Lord, uh, com- uh, the Father, uh, confirm his love for him. And he's walked out of those waters. And it says here in, ver- in Matthew 4 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So that God actually takes Jesus into this wilderness to be tested in this affirmation. And he knows that Satan is there at that other end. And the first temptation that he faces here, and it says that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become like loaves of bread. But he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is that a familiar phrase that we just read? Right? The temptation is one of appetite. Humans love comfort. Food brings comfort. Hunger is pain. Hunger is all-consuming when you're starving. But unlike Israel, and so often us, Jesus does not yield to the temptation. He doesn't grumble once. Instead, he, he points to the word of God. And he points to God as the source of life. And he trusts in God. And what emerges here from this text is that there is a better Israel that passes the test. We desperately need Jesus. To pass the test for us. Because we have the spirit of God working on us. And we can pass tests. We have the, the ability to say no to temptation. But we know that in our lives, we will not be perfect. We need Jesus to pass all the tests. And he does so. And this is a foundational part of the gospel message we can't keep God's law perfectly but Jesus the true son he does keep God's law perfectly and that despite our failures we have a better son of man who is able to live perfectly and pass the test that we fail so so much at so that's one gospel or uh, connection in our lives today the second one is this that Jesus is the bread of life that we need for eternal life. Jesus did the miracle of bread in John 6. Okay? John 6, with, which Marius read for us at the very beginning. Jesus knew he had just done the miracle where he fed thousands of people. But he knew their hearts. They were following him because they wanted the next miracle. They loved that he would do these kinds of things. 
And so Jesus knew their hearts and he says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And so the people don't fully understand this and they say, what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? This is after he just did thousands, he just fed thousands of them with the, the bread. Okay? After. What sign will you do? And then they bring up manna and say, they say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. But he got, what's most important to Jesus is his spiritual life at this point in time. He turns the discussion and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gave you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus is saying, I can supply more than what you think you need at this moment in time. You think you just want something to fill your belly. You just want comfort. But I'm saying, I am the bread of life. I, without me, you can live forever. Sorry, without me, you can't live forever. With me, you can. And I, I, I love it in John 41, 42. They, they do exactly what the Israelites did. They grumble against Jesus. It's the same word. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread of, that comes down from heaven. And they say, is this not Jesus? And we know his mom and dad. We know who he is. How does he say, I have come down from heaven? And here's the thing. They wanted salvation on their own terms. People still grumble at the thought of a crucified Savior. That there's only one way. But the gospel says that Jesus was able to feed people with physical bread in a miracle. But this really only foreshadows his ability to feed your greatest spiritual need in your life. What he's saying is that Jesus is the better manna. And thirdly, as we think about this text today, is that Jesus is the rock that was struck for our salvation. Remember how the rock was struck so that water would gush out of it? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the rock, and in the story of the rock, Moses hits the rock instead of the people that he might have wanted to. And in this miracle, water flows forth. And, in this mo- and, and here's the miracle of the gospel, that Jesus, the rock, was struck for you once, And out of that comes a water that is going to satisfy your thirst spiritually for eternity. So how do we respond to this? There's two ways. One is to really do this. I ask you, do you trust in God in the provision of your life? Do you trust him when, are you anxious here today? Are you worried about the next, your next day? And when you have hard things come, will you trust or will you grumble? You know, taking stock of this week, think about this past week. What was your primary reaction when things didn't go well? Israel's experience uh, shows that we need this. We need to be sent out of here today. You know, sometimes you come and you say, I just want to take something. I want to get... But the purpose of giving you teaching here is to send you out with something that you can turn to, you know, as you read the word for the rest of the week. And each day we need to learn what it means to trust God. 
And so Israel's experience shows a God who is good and provides for the needs of the people. When you encounter a need in your life, will you trust or grumble today? And secondly, this, will you trust in the Son for your greatest spiritual needs? You and I, we all need food, we need clothing, we need homes, but only Jesus satisfies your spiritual needs. This is, this is what he's saying when he, he says, I'm the bread. And so the gospel reminds us that Jesus passed the test that you and I could never do. He lived perfectly so, so that he is worthy today. The gospel reminds us to be humble because in this relationship, we need God to change us. To choose to be satisfied in him alone and not in all the other things. The gospel reminds us to be thankful this morning. Because there's only one religion that, where God doesn't demand punishment upon his subjects. Because they disobeyed him. But instead poured out his wrath on, his, on himself, on his own son. Jesus was struck so you don't have to be. And I like to say, this is great news for us today. So I invite you to worship Jesus with us because of this. To trust and to ask. And I even ask today, if you're sitting here today, and maybe you've been sitting for weeks and you've been listening, and I ask you again, are you trusting in the bread of, of, from heaven, Jesus who is able to satisfy you in all the areas of your life that you're spiritually hungry and thirsty, would you consider Christ who promises to fulfill all these things in perfection? And so we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you, and we ask that today you would speak into our hearts as we respond to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.